So I, I'm, I'm involved in we've got a new product that we're bringing to market. So I've been focusing a lot of my time on that product. On, on you know, we, we try and use feedback loops. So, you know, put something out there, get that feedback, really, really listen intensely, ask really good questions, which draw mm. out needs or, or pushbacks or challenges. So we can understand that we're really solving the true problem that the customer really wants solving rather than the problem we want to solve. And we think that they want solving uh, yeah. because often they can be subtly different but that's really, really important. It's really important for product development. So we've got a big R&D team, number of PhD researchers, larger engineering team. So they're building based on what we're, we're hearing and what we're, we're believing we're hearing. But, and, and they're you know, prioritizing the next features and the next iterations on that, but also on the marketing side in the go-to-market to get that messaging right. So that when someone reads it, they almost feel like a, an aha moment. Wow, okay, that's what I've been trying to say, but no one's been hearing me. Um, you know, mm. that's what we want to do. And I think that's what great listening does and great questioning. It reveals the direction, the true problem that, that uh, the businesses actually want to have solved. Thank you for joining episode 138 of Interviews Cracking the Entrepreneur Bottleneck. I've been mentoring startups for many years and see founders repeatedly making the same mistake. They get lost in their technical solution without being crystal clear about who their customers are and what their needs are. Liam Patterson, the founder and CEO of Bitnamic, is very well aware of that bottleneck. His company is a marketing technology platform that helps retailers unlock the full potential of Google Shopping out in the UK. Evolving in a very competitive landscape, Deeply understanding their customers is critical to their growth. So join our conversation as Liam shares how to build great products in e-commerce, stay on top of your customers' minds, prospect for the right customers, and move from startup to scale. Talking about bottlenecks, remember that the biggest risk your business faces is you. There's a 100% chance that you will eventually be the bottleneck in your business. It's better to prevent than to cure. So take my bottleneck index and discover what your potential bottlenecks are, their impact on your business, and more importantly, how to tackle them. You'll find the link in the show notes. Hey, Thank you very much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, like... I said in your introduction, you started your first business when you were like 14, but still like a kid. <laughs> what, was, what was so appealing about it? Yeah, so I think I've, I've always come from a family who have been surrounded by entrepreneurship. So uh, yeah. my parents ran their own business together. Um, my two grandparents, my two grandfathers were both, uh, were both running their own business. Uh, one in uh, in kind of uh, pub pubs publican and uh, the other in uh, in plumbing. So I think I've always been surrounded by that um, that kind of culture that you can set up that business is an option and uh, it's something to yeah to be uh, yeah that gives a lot of freedom that gives a lot of upside. Um, so yeah, I think it's been a natural draw. Um, and I suppose kind of um, some breakthrough entrepreneurs in the UK, such as Richard Branson, kind of getting started mm. started and really scaling up, becoming a bit of a, a figure when I was young as well. Um, I think, yeah, some of those things have definitely uh, played a part in uh, in the draw to entrepreneurship. Was there like a specific trigger, though? Or was um, it just like a long, you know, was just like growing into you? 
yeah exactly maybe growing into myself yeah i think yeah. i grew up in a fairly uh, fairly maybe a small town pretty boring you know there wasn't a lot of <laughs> entertainment on tap so i think uh, you know that naturally gives you gets your mind creative gets your cogs whirring and yeah uh, seeing the kind of rise of of very early stage uh, online e-commerce retail uh, was something that was exciting you know it's suddenly accessible if you could put the effort in to learn the coding to learn mm. the, the early days of digital marketing and that appealed to, to myself and a, and a good friend as well so um yeah i think that was that was the, the nature of it yeah how many businesses have you run oh yeah a few maybe four or five now so okay. um yeah um my first real business was in uh, in sports equipment so i do the sport of fencing or did the sport of fencing so swords masks jackets uh, we found a, a low-cost importer based out in in china whereas all the other equipment is made in, in london and berlin so you know yeah. some of the most expensive cities in the world certainly at the time um which is like 2009 and um yeah 2006 and yeah we got the uk and ireland exclusivity for this this manufacturer brought it in and, and began to build a real business um out of the out of the dorm room so uh yeah it was uh was was, was that was the first pro proper business still running to this day my uh okay, my dad and my brother run it and that's his full-time full-time role for my brother so uh wow. yeah it's nice to see that all these years later still going still generating nice profits and uh and that was really my first buy into real real scaled up entrepreneurship and um, before that it was yeah just just iterating finding opportunities hustling as they might say today so you started at the age of 14 how old are you today i'm now 35 36 actually yeah 36, 36. so yeah. that's like yeah. that's already like 20 years yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. i mean to give some context when i, when I was doing e-commerce amazon wasn't even around there was qxl <laughs> was the big marketplace and we were selling on that then ebay arrived so yeah it was really you know really in the the early days of of e-commerce being a thing yeah uh, so 20 years ago we were like in 2002 yeah so the early days like you said what are what are some of the um you know the big the the, the big trends you've seen or the, the, all the changes in the landscape or changes changes in the the, the way you do entrepreneurship of, over the the last 20 years yeah i think it's become way more um it was you know the road less trodden was you know very much the saying mm. back then and very much the feeling you know being an entrepreneur even being self employed you know but not not necessarily having that drive just was totally unique no one was self-employed no one was a freelancer it was you know just a, a, you know something that didn't happen let alone being an entrepreneur and building a business and and focus on that scale up i remember reading about it in things like TechCrunch, and it was you know just something happening in silicon valley and these startups getting funded and you know then there was just was just no ecosystem uh, both on the entrepreneurship system you know side of things there wasn't that many you know people call them businessmen you know uh, yeah. and and unfortunately, it probably was men. It was very male dominated. It's still too male dominated today. But, you know, it certainly was. And it was people's uncles who you might know. And it was an older school generation. There wasn't the young youth that you could, you know, relate to and be like, I can do that. Uh, I could, you know. Uh, and I think then the Internet's come along. We've seen the, the, the rise of that in terms of niches being built out. And I think niches have started to come in terms of entrepreneurship and then segmented down you know there's e-commerce there's all the different types of entrepreneurship have their own community have their own heart have their own pulse to them uh, and it's way more accessible um, mm. the other side of things is the amount of money you, you used to need just to do the basics not even to build the business but you had to be spending huge amounts so when i started in e-commerce you would build your own checkout you know, you'd have to write and deal with the banks, the merchant services, you'd go and get contracts, get meetings. So the pace was very slow. 
but also mm. the cost of infrastructure was was really really high and the the amount of talent out there and technology out there was first of all it was expensive to access the technology and it was expensive and rare to get the, t- the talent as well um so i think like all those things have really become much more accessible much more democratized now you know money isn't often the challenge to get started you could get started if you've got a great idea for just a few hundred hundred or a few hundred dollars and and easily push something out there whereas before you need the website and that website would take months to build it would cost tens of thousands of to build you know and and that was on the cheap so um i think they're the things that have really changed is that democracy and, and also that collective you know you're part of something as an entrepreneur now uh, and something which is quite common and quite ac- accessible um versus rare which it was back then yeah yeah it's 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 really interesting it's just i'm, I'm part of the two generations you know i was yeah. born in 1976 with no internet <laughs> no yeah. mobile phone and now we reach a point where like yeah you know, like recently i interviewed ata kinder the founder of jotform yeah. everything is just like plug and play <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, we, and we forget we forgot that it started as like you're saying it was it was new technologies everything was expensive difficult to put into place to build into systems and, just, and now it's just like you know, on a snap of a finger yeah it's uh it's amazing the uh, how fast it has it has evolved and yeah. i guess this this you know this this speed as a business uh, owner uh, working into the e-commerce uh, yeah. environment, you have to be on top of it, right? Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's easy to get left out. Yeah, exactly. So do, I think it's really two, really two sides of e-commerce because yeah. you've still got a heart, which is traditional retail. It's great product, great price understanding the trends, understanding your customer. And those the, the rules that haven't changed and then will mm. never change. If you know great product, if you know your customers, if you're listening to them, then that's that's you know that is the core of of, of, of retail, be it offline or online, and that won't change. But then the technology is where the competitiveness comes. If it's a right. product which is democratized, I think that's you know that's the other side of it is that whilst the access to information, the requirements of funding have all come down, the the thing that's gone up is competition. Now five, 10, 20 people are launching it, you know, where it might have been one or two that had a dropship business. Now it's hundreds of people every day are launching dropship businesses. The cost isn't, isn't, a, a, isn't a challenge. And that means there's massive competition. And one way to differentiate there is through, through using the right technology and really knowing intuitively what dials to turn and when. And I think that's mm. the role of technology, which is really coming in and being disruptive so that while someone can easily launch a website, they can get the product, they can have it on the website. If they don't know all the dials, which someone experienced has really learned and, and maybe learned the hard way, you know, uh, where to invest and the impact of that investment, then it can really leave them in a, in a challenging situation. And I think that's the frustration is that if people, whilst the cost has come down, the cost to stay on top and stay at the, the front of the pack has, has risen dramatically. And we've mm. seen that from a, from a paid media perspective. So as you mentioned, we do the, a lot around Google shopping, which is the Google search carousel. And we've seen a skyrocket year over year, month over month, and a real leap in COVID. So, you know, when people have gone online, they've taken offline businesses online and they've not gone the other way. They're now online selling, competing. Uh, it's easier for people to launch businesses. So we're seeing a huge growth in new businesses and quality in new businesses, not just, you know, someone giving it a try. We're talking about good, well-executed businesses um, that will be very successful. 
all of those things are, are fighting for for consumers attention and yeah. they've only got so much so much time there's only so much space on whatever form of media it is if it's google shopping it's the carousel if it's instagram or social you're only going to scroll over and engage with and read so many ads uh, and interact mm. with so many ads and fundamentally you only need so many products you only need to spend so much um and, and then we're seeing the the economic situation where you know costs are rising particularly in the uk uh, with inflation, the cost of products is going up, so retailers have less margin, and that's a real challenge. Is that you know you've got these challenging headwinds where the the barriers have come down, the costs have gone up, and you're just gotta you've got to kind of trade for it. Um, and yeah, it's a, certainly a, an interesting time that I don't think we've really seen before. Um, mm. And now, just in the last few months, we've seen the the AI really starting to to take hold, but really in in ways that people can now see it. I think that yeah. AI has always always been there. It's always been able to be used, but it's been used uh, successfully by a small number or a few people, whereas now people can see the impact of it. And I think over the next six months, we're going to see some really disruptive uses of that, which are going to give massive efficiency gains, um, which I think is going to be challenging for the labor market, to be quite honest, because I don't think the policymakers and, and individual businesses have yet realized how impactful this can be. Um, both positively and negatively. And then, then it ties back to what you were saying earlier. You're, you're saying, I don't forget the fundamentals. Like you said, you said, you know, the product, the, the, the customers, talking to customers, talk, understanding them, this has never changed. This is always yeah. there. So isn't it a time also where it's even more important to go back to the basics and yeah. be like really focused on understanding your customers? Because I'm saying that because, you know, I mentor startups, for instance, and I see a lot of them being so focused on the on the on the product on the technology yeah. but technology is not the end right yeah. it's just a mean yeah. a mean to 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 an end so how do you make sure that you're on top of the customers yourself yeah yeah absolutely so um in terms of myself in our business or in yes. terms of more, more generally yeah so um so i I'm, I'm involved in got a new product that we're bringing to market so i've been focusing a lot of my time on that product on on you know we, we try and use feedback loops so you know put something out there get that feedback really really listen intensely ask really good questions which draw mm. out needs or, or pushbacks or challenges so we can understand that we're really solving the true problem that the customer really wants solving rather than the problem we want to solve and we think that they want solving uh, yeah. because often they can be subtly different but that's really really important it's really important for product development so we've got a big r d team number of phd researchers larger engineering team so they're building based on what we're, we're hearing and what we're, we're believing we're hearing but and, and they're you know prioritizing the next features and the next iterations uh, on that but also on the marketing side in the go-to-market to get that messaging right so that when someone reads it they almost feel like a, an aha moment wow okay that's what i've been trying to say but no one's been hearing me um, mm. you know, that's what we want to do and i think that's what great listening does and great questioning it reveals the direction the true problem that that uh, the businesses actually want to have solved um, and so often i've got many many friends who are entrepreneurs they half hear a problem they half hear what their customer is saying they immediately start to think about what they're going to say or the feature they have that that connects to or the product they're going to build for that and then they sell the customer and naturally they're great entrepreneurs they're great at sales they're going to sell the customer that the problem they were really saying was the problem was what they have was the solution they have but actually mm. didn't really hear what the customer was saying in the first place and i think that can be a challenge when entrepreneurs are great at selling that they can miss here and then sell the customer and they go look the customer wants exactly what we wanted 
you know, but actually it wasn't fundamentally. That wasn't the fundamental challenge. Um, so I think that's one part. And also the role of data and education. You know, we can convince and, and there's that thing of, of Steve Jobs, you know, the, being able to change the world around him and change, you know, the, the perception of what was going on, the perception of reality, um, which I think many entrepreneurs, great entrepreneurs have that ability, but they, they don't have that ability on data. So when they're, they're telling the customers one thing and the customers believing it because that's what they're hearing and seeing from them, if the data is different, that's what what is another really important feedback loop is so we've got a very data driven culture which is you know let's really prove this from what the customers are saying from what the customers want from what the customers are you know using language wise and also let's prove it in data let's prove those results let's get those case studies let's get let's be transparent about it and i think those two things together are really really core for driving a driving a business yeah so constantly test validate collect feedback and do it again and again and again yeah it's an ongoing cycle you know everything we yeah. do we're trying to get better at um, so we borrow a few a few quotes from quite a few different entrepreneurs. So, you know, be the best at getting better is a big mantra that we have. So don't just do something, do it to, to teach it again, do it to improve it. Don't just execute, execute, execute the same thing, execute it and then stop and reflect. How could we have done that better? Was there a small, mm. very, you know, half a percent, one percent, two percent gain we could do on that? Stop, improve it or do what we believe is improving it, then do it again and see what the result was. And that's on everything, you know, every single touch point we try and have, we try to have this uh, this this loop going on. And again, that's something we, we try to pass through to the teams, to the managers, the managers pass down to uh, across those individuals and, and vice versa, getting that feedback back up as well, I think is really, really critical. You were talking about uh, questioning earlier and I have another quote for you. With the right questions comes the right answers. It's from me, you can quote me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. yeah, yeah, love it absolutely love it yeah that's going down i'm stealing that <laughs> we'll, we'll attribute it to you we'll attribute it <laughs> that's what i learned in market research my background is in market market research and that's the same that's the same we we, we had nice. um so why did you go into that specific niche niche is a term that you used earlier and so why google shopping what did you see yeah. Yeah, it was actually quite by accident. So we're we're a team of very technical co-founders. So my co-founder has a PhD in maths, uh, and the, the rest of the team is very engineering led. And we built um, a business prior to this, which was a print-on-demand business. So it was a digital mm -hmm. marketplace. So it was an e-commerce marketplace. The artists, thousands of artists, illustrators, graphic designers would come to the website, upload an image. They could digitally merchandise it onto popular merchandise. So canvases, T-shirts, mugs. We built a uh, proprietary image engine that would render that around a product so it looked like it was on the, the folds of a T-shirt, for example. Mm. So it looked hyper-realistic, like a finished product. And then we would push it into different marketing channels. And the marketing channel that kept driving a, a good ROI, a good um, which we went deeper and deeper on, was Google Shopping, was this carousel of adverts. So we were getting a huge um, fire hose of, of images of but with them becoming e-commerce products. We were putting them out into, into Google Ads, into Google Shopping, arbitraging, driving the click, that for, for you know, driving more revenue than the click costs uh, profitably. And, and then we were just feedback, doing that loop again and again, and going really, really deep on it. And we ran it across 14 territories. And the beauty of this model was it was print on demand. So unlike traditional e-commerce where you have warehouses, you have warehouse staff, fulfillment challenges, um, you know, cash flow challenges, this was on demand. So we would uh, get the order as soon as we, you know, someone converted through the, through the checkout, the sales checkout, we'd 
route that order directly to a local print and fulfillment company that we built a, an API network for, uh, and they would print it and ship it next day to the customer all tracked. So we were able mm. to run an e-commerce business, but we didn't have to be experts on what was coming in. because that was the artists, illustrators, graphic designers reacting yeah. to the zeitgeist. And we were putting it through, um, through this channel. And one of our investors or a few of our investors saw the results month after month, quarter after quarter. Um, and, and it was Marion Mayer, actually, the co-founder of Booking.com, who said to us, look, guys, you know, you're onto something. Can we use this for our portfolio companies? And we'd never thought about being a tech business, having any kind of SaaS experience. Um, so we were quite uh, hesitant to do it, push back on it. It worked for us, probably wouldn't work for another business. Eventually, mm. we gave in and, uh, and worked with our first clients. Um, and we just saw a hockey stick of, of revenue, of profit, um, just from applying all the learnings, all those little 1% gains that we'd been doing for years, building our own technology. And we saw, wow, okay, we're, we're really onto something. Um, and we also started to, we then, so first say 10, 12 customers were from our, our angels that were their investments, that were their network, their portfolio companies. And again and again, repeatedly, we're just driving up profitability, driving up growth on the channel of Google Shopping. And it's at that point that we realized actually how big the market was, that there was, you know, a huge amount of retailers using this channel. They were spending a lot. Actually, the kind of ROI um, and, and revenue growth we could deliver was something really impactful. And so it was really pull. You know, we got pulled into mm. this. Uh, and then and then we had to learn the rest. We had to learn how do we sell? Because none of us had any sales or SaaS sales experience. How do we deliver to customers? We had no service experience. You know, we were we were from the market, we were from the engineering side of things, from you know, from building great products from the e-commerce world, not at all client services. So I think that really actually helped us because we just went out of a blank sheet of paper. We got the best training. We we imagined the services that we would like to have, and few of us had ever worked, even worked with agencies. We'd built everything proprietary. Um, mm. but we imagined how these experiences would be, which actually I think was quite a lot better than maybe how they actually were. <laughs> <laughs> in, in many in many cases and that's and that's what we did and then we we brought people in and, and taught that down to the team and actually they came with great challenges observations learnings and, and the rest was really shaped by the market and um and then about a year ago we took a vc investment into the okay. company as well um but until then we bootstrapped so again that same thing of just listening iterating technologically on what what customers wanted and what was driving yeah. results as well yeah I guess also another lesson here is also to, to to be able to surround yourself with the right people. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely critical. Yeah, and yeah. also the yeah, as you mentioned I've had quite a few different startups, and I think naturally we're drawn to people that think similar to us, that communicate similar to us, that have very similar attitudes. But actually, that probably means that your core competencies and skill sets are a huge overlap. Mm. Um, so you know, my my previous co-founders brilliant in communicating, brilliant at strategy, brilliant at metrics, acquisition. And I learned a lot from them and, and hopefully vice versa. But actually, there was a lot of skills overlap, which meant there was whole areas that we wouldn't have, have coverage to, um, which yeah. wouldn't be as on it as. Whereas I think it's been really good with my, with my co-founders here that actually we've been able to, and, my, and the core team that we've built around us is that we've been able to have you know, some overlap, but actually very different skills. So we naturally slotted into areas of the business that were separate, that could add value, uh, which we could own and iterate on um, with, with connection, but with independence as well. So I think that's been um, been part of it as well, is that founder overlap as well. And the quality of people is is absolutely critical. Yeah. Why do you think your clients, so your clients are retailers? That, that's right, right. e-commerce retailers. Yeah. E-commerce retailers. Why do you think they keep on coming to you? Yeah, I think it's a, um, a partly due to a very clear value proposition. So yeah. 
what is a niche is the, these Google shopping ads. Um, yeah. So because of that, we've become, we've solely from day one focused on this. We've become absolute experts at what was a very niche channel, uh, but has just grown and grown and grown in, in, you know, through the way that Google's changed the, the landing, the, the, the search results, the carousel has just become more and more critical and the rise of competition we've seen there because of, because of COVID in part, because of new retailers, because of those barriers to e-commerce coming down as well. Um, we've seen you know, huge amounts of growth into ad spend, which has created a challenge. It means now there's still only five positions. The first position of the carousel is critical. About 60 mm. to 65% of the clicks go on the, on the first position. Um, so that means there's a real squeeze, a real challenge for retailers. So they've got to look at being smarter. Um, and that's just led, led directly into our proposition. I think the second part is around um, what we call ICP, Ideal Customer Profile. Mm -hmm. So we know who our technology will work for. And we also importantly know who it's not going to work for. So we're able to, to validate that. Um, and, and we do a lot of work up front on what we call an audit. So we, we'll link into their Google Ads account, have all their data, all their numbers. And we're able to, to validate that fit. Is it there? Is it not? turn away a majority of the businesses that we, we speak with and we start doing the audit process because it's just not going to be a fit for them. It's not going to be a fit for us either. Um, so we're able to give that clarity to those businesses, direct them in the way of a, a better approach or a, you know, a, an approach that can, that can help them, or maybe we can't add any value at all. And, and then for those that we can, we can, we can really validate and show exactly how our approach will unlock that incremental profit or growth for that business. Uh, and we can do it through the numbers of their own account. So it's not us saying, we think you could get this, you know, which is quite common, unfortunately, in digital marketing. It's validated with the numbers. Uh, and, and that means we've got a really good rep reputation as well in terms of track records, in terms of the, we've got over 50 plus case studies, referencing the, the names, the brands, the logos, the impacts we've had, even the decision makers name and their role at the business. And a quote mm. from them. So we're able to give it that transparency to, to retailers. Um, so I think that certainly played a part in, um, in, you know, getting referrals and getting the authority within the market. Uh, and also we've just grown to, from from being niche but but following that that results driven approach um continuously and then more recently we've just started to unlock ancillary technologies which are which are truly proprietary as well so again that gives us that next next uh, advantage by moving into for example landing pages built just for this google shopping journey so again it, reducing what they call bounce rate so again it just gives us a suite of technologies to solve a core problem Whereas most people in our space wouldn't have that depth of knowledge, that depth of, of a single vertical of, of e-commerce retailers and then just Google shopping. So it allows us to have built that real expertise within an authority within the market. I'm a fan of uh, Fetz Godin uh, yes. and to, to quote him because you like quotes. <laughs> He's yeah. talking about uh, the most valuable market, which is you, which you refer to the niche. But this this is exactly like textbook what you're what you're saying. And. What I like is that you were talking about your ICP, your ideal customer profile. And this is something that many uh, entrepreneurs don't understand well enough. And, you know, always choose your client. Everyone's not your customer. Choose your client. But what I hear a lot is, oh, yeah, but, you know, if I can, if I have to choose my clients, it, I cannot afford, you know, running the business because I still have to pay for the bills. So what would, you, what would, what would be your, your recommendation if, if someone tells you this? 
yeah, I, I would say it's fool's gold. It really is because you think, okay, we can we can close this deal, we can make this money. They're going to pay us this amount of money, but it's a bit like having a bag of actual gold nuggets and you're throwing in fool's gold in there. You fill the bag up, so you think, oh, I filled the whole bag. We've now got to take the bag away and stop prospecting for real gold. But mm. actually, you know that you've just been putting in, you know, stones. You've been putting in pebbles. You've been putting in fool's gold into that bag, and it just costs you so much, uh, and it can cost you your reputation as well. Um, because if you know this business isn't going to be a fit for what you're what you're doing, you already know the outcome. Why aren't they a fit? Well, they're not a fit because they're not going to get the value. They're not going to get enough value, or they're not going to get it in enough time. It's going to take them years, you know. So, what's the repercussions of that? It's good. they're going to be frustrated. They're going to ask a lot of questions. They're going to generate a lot of support. They're going to, uh, you know, all of those things are distractions from being able to get more, get more of the right customers. Instead, you're now dealing with challenges which are coming up, and those challenges only exist because they're not the right type of customer. And and if you knew that from day one, and it's fine when you're iterating, you're learning, you're you're advising your ICP for learning through data through that feedback loop of hearing what the customers really want and what they said to you wasn't actually what they really meant but when you know what they really meant what they really need how they really need to solve that and that's not your solution then taking them on will only continue to cost you and i think the other part is is where the cost starts the cost doesn't start at the end where they're generating lots of support tickets and lots of challenges and lots of resources for your client services, your client success, your delivery team, it starts earlier on because you've been prospecting into these no-fit accounts. So they've not just mm. found you organically. They've probably been because you've you've sent them an email, you've sent them a call, you've maybe run ads again, you know, run ads to bring them into your funnel. Well, that's a cost. It's a cost of your your outbound team, it's a cost of your digital marketing money to bring in the wrong fits. You're already wasting money there. Then they're coming through. Then you're presenting sales decks and surprise, surprise, pitching a, a product, a product or a solution to someone who's not a good fit. You're going to have a much lower win rate. It's not going to resonate as frequently as and often as them. And when they do close, they're going to close for less. You're going to be probably yeah. discounting your product. You're going to be offering terms that you wouldn't otherwise do to make it try to fit. And then after that, you're going to have all this extra support. So actually, it's a huge, huge cost to your business. And the more you're doing this, the more you're you're in, incurring this cost again and again. And also then your team get frustrated. They see it happening again and again. Um, so it's a real, uh, real vicious cycle um, that you have to, um, you know, if you've got to wean yourself off it, if you've got your business to a place where you've got a lot of, you know, maybe the proposition's changed. Maybe you've moved up market from being SME to being enterprise focused. You've got to, you know, iterate towards that set. We use OKRs, set OKRs that are going to move you up market, for example, um, and be really, really metrics focused on those. And, uh, and then I think you'll, you'll uncover that actually they've been a huge attrition to cost. And actually, if you didn't have that many bad fit, you'd, you'd have less support costs, you'd have better um, repayment yeah. times on your customers, you'd need a smaller marketing budget to hit your target, you'd need a smaller uh, delivery team, all these things, uh, all because of kind of um, not really honing in on your ICP. Um, yeah, and while you're busy servicing your bad clients, you're not busy like uh, going after the the ICPs or servicing the the ICPs. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I suppose yeah. the only the only caveat to that is where it's learning, where you think, mm. okay, we're we're yes. confident that we've changed things, that we can service this client base much much better now, uh, and then it's about learning and feedback uh, and just taking that kind of approach to it as well. Yeah, yeah and this ties back to what you were talking about earlier on questioning. Because yeah. every time you met, you met a potential client, you have to qualify that client. And the way to qualify the clients to use the right questions so that you get the right answers 
And what I always recommend to my clients is to get some, to have some red flags, like big yeah. no-nos. <laughs> yeah. 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 Even though like 95% of all the criteria are okay, but if there's one red flag, you should just say, no, thank you. Do you have, yeah. do you, do you have any red flags like that? Um, yeah, so I wouldn't say necessarily purely red flags, but definitely criteria. So um, yeah. well, because we're, we're predominantly on this Google Shopping carousel, it's like, are they active on Google Shopping? Because if right. they're new to Google Shopping, how are they going to know that we're the best or the worst? You know, they're not going to have any benchmark. So we could take them on, knock it out of the park. And then, you know, 12 months later, they're like, oh, actually, we're going to try someone else to see what that's like because they have no benchmark that where you've got them to is, is really remarkable and they've only got your own words. And that's, that's, you know, expected, right? People want to understand. They don't know how good they've got it till they go away and try. Um, so I think that's, that's definitely one is like, are they active on that? And then other criteria, you know, um, how, how much money are they putting through these ads? Um, mm. They're only spending a very, very small amount. Actually, that's going to mean that they the ROI they can generate uh, and, and the uh, tests we can run for them are going to be much, much slower, slower than someone who's got a, a much larger spend. There's also areas around um, things that are not so obvious, like their bounce rate. So if they've got a really high bounce rate, so a bounce rate is when someone clicks on the Google Shopping carousel, they land onto the, the e-commerce website, which is the product page, and they immediately bounce off. They leave without interacting, without clicking. So if they've, that's really their effectiveness of their ad spend. Um, so that could be due to the page speed. It could be really, really slow. So if we know that someone's got a high bounce rate, they've got incredibly slow product pages, they've got no product recommendation on there, they're not showing alternative items for someone to click and buy, we know where the real bottleneck to come back to your point. We've got we know ah. where the real bottleneck <laughs> is, their, is their website. So we don't wanna we don't wanna push loads and loads through because it's just gonna get stuck and it's not gonna be impactful. So it's identifying where that bottleneck is and um, and going from there really to 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 relieve that. Um, so and then maybe coming back at the right time. So that could be the right product. So we we offer them the right product that we have that can remove that real bottleneck or we direct them in the way of the right partner or, or independent business, someone else. We guide them. These are the metrics that are the challenge. Take this away, do that. Maybe you can be a perfect customer later on uh, and once they've solved that real issue. Um, or, or maybe we're a perfect fit for them as well and we can help solve that. So I think that's that's really critical to it. Great. Let's talk about bottlenecks then and then let's switch to you uh, a little bit. What have you, what have you learned about yourself since you became an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think I've learned a huge, huge amount on the journey. So I think it's yeah. knowing where you're really good at, where you can add value. So where you, my own pattern, my own skill set uh, leads and lags, maybe. So I think I'm I'm very good at the, that vision piece, seeing and understanding a metrics-driven vision, validating true customer demand, and and taking that to customer insights, um, driving that into pro like product vision as well, as well as kind of go-to-market vision. How do we position this so that it resonates with customers? What's the messaging that we're hearing in the market that we can distill to, to generate cut through? Um, what are the channels and how do we lead and manage that in, a, in an authentic, but also in a, a passionate way, which people are going to want to be a part of in terms of joining our team, attracting that really strong talent into the mm. organization. Um, I think they're, they're some of my, my strengths. I'd say equally, well, which is very common when you've got that kind of um, vision focus piece, sometimes mundane uh, components, which are very critical, uh, can, can be lagging. You know, just doing 
uh, doing, you know, um, administrative, what might be called administrative tasks, but are very important to be done. So again, having someone who's very regimented, who's very organized, who's ex, you know, who's following every idea up, every concept up with the next actions that, that are key dates that are deliverables, which are against the, a, a roadmap, which is time bound, which is, which, and as we've grown as a business, being able to bring in experts. So uh, I think I'm very good at a lot of things, um, which I think quite a lot of entrepreneurs who've been in the game, who are smart, who've had, you know, had their challenges and successes are able to get to a pretty high level, but you're never going to be an expert in something. So now we have, you know, many PhD researchers who can immediately take it and identify the right models to bring in or, or, or UI UX designers who can immediately take a, a high level wireframe concept and they can take it to that next level of, of of fidelity in you know, a really high vision vision and clarity and experts within within engineering who can ensure that things like uh you know the the um the back end is really really is really responsive really quick we're utilizing the best libraries the best technologies um really to that, to that expert level so i think that's been one of the great things of scaling a business is we're being able to slot in more and more experts into the business uh, and i'd say yeah that's my my experience is certainly on that um on more on that vision that go to market um, and getting those customer feedback loops in place. Yeah, you know, the, having those experts is is really interesting because a lot of entrepreneurs, like you said, they want they tend to um, uh, do everything by themselves and they don't yeah. they don't let go, which is like one massive bottleneck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Looking, like Again, look, I'm very strong on his delegation, yeah. and I think it really resonates. So top people don't want to be micromanaged, and not even micromanaged. They they want to be given something which is very clear, which is they can see the vision, they can really understand it, they can really conceptualize it, but it is just a vision, and then they're going to paint the picture on top of those lines. It's almost like a line a line outline, and they're going to make it absolutely amazing. And exactly. then they own that success, and they have 100% delivered on that success. That's theirs to own, uh, and not to have been told, oh, paint this yellow and do this red and do that. You know, No, we've given it a very high-level outline, which is still very clear exactly what we want, but they've gone off and done that, and they can have that pride in achievement of, of doing that which is absolutely brilliant and, and for myself i'm able to step back and think about the next you know the next phase the next other projects um and i think that's the that's the core to having a great team who can who can where you can paint the outline but they can add all the detail and and the responsibility yeah exactly because this is exactly your job as the funder especially as the business grows you need to detach yourself more and more from operations either people under you people are a lot better at you than you yeah. are what they do and then focus on strategy focus on the, on the vision focus yep. on, on 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 processes but I, i'm i'm curious because with all that experience you've had i'm sure you've been the bottleneck in your business before yeah. <laughs> do, yeah. you, do you remember a few things. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the last time or one of your biggest the biggest bottlenecks that you had to uh, uh tackle um, yes, yeah, so I suppose there's um, maybe around a year ago, it's always around kind of, you know, resources. So mm. funding is, is probably one of those things, right, which as a founder, you've got to own. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say it was a bottleneck, but it was maybe like anything, you know, the, the process is relatively slow. Um, even when you're getting really good results, you're getting you know, great meetings, you're getting you're going to go at the pace of the of either the market. Um, which at the time a year ago was, was pretty hot, was pretty rapid. There was a lot of demand, but then you're still going to go through due diligence and 
I found that quite frustrating because, you know, in one respect, you're like, well, due diligence to be quick. You know, there's these things, you've just got to step through them. Um, but then actually your behest to service providers or to the pace of that process externally. And I think then that's creating a bottleneck in terms of, you know, talent's waiting for that. It's waiting for that. It's G'd up. It's on the start line. It wants to deploy that budget to make that yeah. next step, that next leap. But you've got to wait for that to come through. So I think that was, you know, I wouldn't say a major bottleneck, but that was was one where we had that confidence that we could keep leaning into it and go ahead, you know, knowing it was coming. Um, but yeah, there was certainly a moment that if, if it hadn't, it would have maybe been a bit okay. This we've gone a bit far, maybe. Uh, mm. So I'd say that's that's one of them. I think then um, in terms of you know just quick quick uh, commitments. So I think that's why I, I delegate a lot down, so that the teams can make those commitments without needing to loop me in. Um, so they can make hiring decisions. They can make uh, progression planning. Uh, it's not centralized. It's passed down in our organization to those to those managers to to own those their OKRs their objectives. So I I really try to step back from that whereas i would say maybe historically those things would have to go through me which then getting time down getting that to talk about that to get it approved maybe wasn't as fast as it could have been which i think is you know we need to run these these flywheels quickly we need to get people to make autonomous decisions um so i think that's um you know that's definitely um important to have those uh you know whilst you might give some the autonomy they might still feel uncom uncomfortable until they've run it past you in which case that can then if it's not clear to me that i need to have that meeting to give them that authority but they felt they did need to have that then that can become a bottleneck as well so, yeah and this is this is critical here because you're talking about delegation but it's not only in terms of task it's also in terms of delegating delegating decision making power telling yeah. them you have the right to make decisions actually i'm expecting you to make the decisions and be accountable for your work and this yeah. is the type of decisions you can you can make and this is the yeah. type of decisions that you can't and you're, you need they need to go through yeah so yeah. so so important so so critical yeah. uh, yeah. exactly and I think that's part of the journey from a, a bootstrapped startup to yeah. becoming a, a scale up in terms of now we've got to formalize things. We've got to have progression plans. Whereas before with a small team, people could just say, well, I know he's amazing. I know that he or she deserves that, that, that this thing, this opportunity, this, this improvement. Uh, and that was very clear. Whereas as you start to scale up, it needs to become more, um, you know, more equalized, more professional, yeah. more. Uh, and then I think that's certainly, um, again, one of those areas that then uh, can become a bottleneck if you're not careful and can, can really frustrate people as well, rightly so. You know, he got this, he, he did it that way, whereas I was never, I never got that opportunity. And, you know, that could be fine in a startup at a small scale, but once it's, you're at a certain size, you need to kind of um, not document, but you need to be professional in those those decisions and those those rationales behind it as well. And that comes yeah. between speed and um, and process, really. Yeah, yeah, it is also about what you're saying. I guess it's about developing a sense of fairness yeah, between, exactly. between people. But yeah. then it means also that you have to communicate the context and everything. So yeah. communicate, communicate, communicate. Yes. Is, yeah. and is I think that's really, certainly a learning as well, is just yeah. how important communication is. So we've grown to, you know, from a, from a relatively small team to now over 100. We've got offices in the UK and in Austin in Texas. And it's, you know, now you've got communication on different time zones in different yeah. cultures. You know, although we're very similar, uh, British and Americans, still quite a big cultural gap at times of mm -hmm. how things can be inferred or we would imagine they would be and third um so i think that's really a piece of like you think you've told people that you think that'll be very clear but actually maybe it's not and it just needs constant reiteration and the same goes for on the client side you know just constantly showing them the results you know you think okay well they've seen that they're not going to need 
told again and again. Actually, yeah. yes, they do. They need to be reminded of that. They need to be hear that same message and that consistency of message, um, particularly as that being starts to be trickled down. So rather than just myself or you know uh, executive leader, it's now like right their senior leader, the other team just needs to be all on all on message, and that's a bit of a yeah a bit of a process to get to mm-hmm. that. Um, which yes. wasn't necessary before, which suddenly becomes necessary at a certain size. So, um, yeah, all those things that, um, yeah, which which need, yeah, uh, take take effort and uh, and getting right as well. Mm, one of my clients at the at the moment is going through that. Uh, he's, he's got a smaller a smaller team, but is 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 still in a process where in the state of mind where once he talks to them, he assumes that they will, you know, react or analyze the situation the same way he would do. Yeah. <laughs> usually yeah. i remind i remind him that there's a reason why is the boss and the, the, the other it's because yeah. he got he has the big picture they don't yeah. necessarily so it's yes. really important to communicate like you were saying set the context yeah. so yeah. communicate your expectations and ask questions and more questions yeah exactly and i think that's it it's like that that kind of we've discussed it recently with the executive team it's like that juxtaposition between transparency and opacity well you know no one wants something that's very opaque they everyone will say they always want tra- transparency but the more transparency you give them also the more context you need to give them the more yeah. understanding they need to to have about these things and then that if if misinterpreted can cause worry or concern or you know challenge and like they feel like they suddenly have this unknown rather than just black and white of, you know, so it's really getting that balance right of giving people transparency, giving them ownership over what they're doing without also distracting them from what they need to be. We need them in a certain lane doing a certain thing. If they're suddenly strategically thinking about this and this, um, which doesn't actually have, they have no control over, they have no impact over, maybe it's a totally different team or totally different department, but now it's starting to cause you know, misinformation or miscommunication or worrying, uh, which which doesn't need to be there. And then it creates mm. this loop of communication. And I think that's, um, yeah, a really interesting one because I think everything you hear about is just be totally transparent, share everything. But actually, without constant communication and interpretation and sharing that on a on a near you know on a, on a very time consuming method and having that trickled down it can just become a bit too confusing so it's yeah. like that balancing act i think is what we've learned it's like yeah great great being very transparent about what they can own and what they are owning um whilst also giving a context to the other areas but not not total transparency perhaps um which i think is an interesting uh kind of yeah interesting piece right that i don't think it's talked about so much indeed all right let's wrap up the conversation take all the experience that you have accumulated over like what a little bit more than 20 years of being an entrepreneur if there was one practical recommendation that you would give to other entrepreneurs or aspiring founders what would it be i'd say trust your trust your instinct uh, mm-hmm. and then validate it with metrics so you know have that conviction you know on any startup even if it's scaled up or in the inception set stage trust your gut feeling because actually as humans we're able to just understand so much about the context we're able to infer so much from different conversations that that's what's giving us this conviction that we have as entrepreneurs and you're going to need to have that conviction to to get over so many of the challenges and hurdles and and negatives that will be thrown at you as you as you scale the business um, but also validate it with metrics where you can so you know track the amount of conversations you're having because sometimes you think god i'm just getting having negative conversation after negative conversation and then you'll look at the numbers and say actually 
actually out of 10 conversations, I had one negative conversation, you know, so sometimes it can really reaffirm you. And sometimes mm. it can also make you realize, okay, I thought I was having lots of positive conversations, but actually there's something to be learned here. And that then leads you into becoming more and more metrics driven in terms of what are the right metrics to track at the right stage uh, and really validate those those assumptions, but only do that alongside conviction, which is the first thing you've got to lead with. Amazing. Last question then, how can people contact you? Absolutely, yeah. They, so they can go to uh, bidynamic.com if you're interested in Google Shopping side of things, what we do for the e-commerce retailers we support. So that is bidnamic.com, B-I-D-N-A-M-I-C.com. You can book a meeting with anyone there. Or if you're interested in myself and my, our story at Bidnamic, uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn. So I'm uh, Liam Patterson and, uh, at Bidnamic uh, on LinkedIn. Excellent. Thank you very much, Liam, for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Cheers. Thanks. And thank you for listening. Interviews Cracking the Entrepreneurship Code is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Subscribe now so you don't miss any episodes. See you next time. Bye for now.